and we have a special treat for the listeners today. Welcome to the St. Canard Files, a Double O Duck podcast. Yes, I said that correctly. Double O Duck podcast. I'm your host, Will Santana, and I'm Mike Russo, and life is like a hurricane. (laughs) (laughs) It really is, Mike, man. Uh, I'm super excited, but today I got to call you Mike Russo, man. Yes, because we have have a legend with us today. Yeah, we sure do, man. And I'm really excited. I can't wait till we get into some double O duck with him and some Darkwing. But with no further ado, let's go ahead and get into this interview, man. Yep, we interviewed Mike Peraza. Let's let's get going. All right. So Mike Russo, we have a special guest with us today, uh, Mike Peraza. Uh, Mike Russo. I have to say his full name, guys, because unfortunately we have two mics here, and you know, so we don't have any kind of confusion. All right. Uh, but before we start this interview with Mike Peraza, I do have to mention we're going to talk Darkwing and a little bit of Disney Afternoon, and it's kind of an injustice, and in my opinion, it's kind of disrespectful to Mike Peraza because his resume is just amazing, and we are limiting it to just Darkwing and Disney Afternoon here. So. With no further ado, we have Mike Peraza here. Welcome, Mike. Hello, gang. Let's Welcome, get Mike. dangerous, Flowey. <laughs> <laughs> Jim will kill me for that. It's uh, it's nice to talk to you, Mike. It's great to have you on. It's wonderful to be here, guys. Yeah, Mike, uh, we've been wanting to get you for quite a while, but, you know, scheduled conflict and... Uh, you know, I've been touring with, you know, at these conventions with some of the voice actors and stuff. So it's been kind of fun and it's been kind of hard to get in sync with you. But I'm glad we finally got you here, man. Yeah, well, so awesome. you got to get the word out. We need to get more of the artists involved on these things. The voice actors are wonderful and fantastic. But we got to get the, the people that draw them because without the artwork and just the voices, you get great radio. So, mm-hmm. yeah, spread the word. get the artists been... involved. I've been trying to track down some artists. Actually, we have a guest coming up who is an artist on the show. Um, I'm trying. I'm I doing my best it. to find some artists. Yeah, we have two two more animators after you, uh, Mike, and then we also have uh, one writer, right, Mike? Yes, we, we have saw? one of the writers as well, yeah. Yeah, so we we definitely trying to expand from just the voice actors and trying to get some of the anime. We're trying to get the whole team. It, it, oh, it took a whole that. team. Yeah, it took the whole team to get these episodes out, so... We also interviewed the composer last month, too. Oh, oh yeah, we God. sure did. Philip Giffen, we sure did. We interviewed him last month. That is fantastic. Because I'm a big animation guy. I love the animation and all the Disney stuff. So it's just not always easy for me to track these people down, you know? So I guess we should get started. Let's, 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 um, let's talk about um, what your influences were, Mike. How, what, what kind of cartoons did you enjoy growing up? Did you always want to go into this uh, field? You know, actually, uh, being a, a baby boomer, when you grew up in the 50s, we had a, a wealth of fantastic shows on. I know they, they show like a lot of Mr. Rogers and things, but the people that I knew growing up in the 50s watched a show called Captain Kangaroo, and they had some really limited animation on there called Tom Terrific and Mighty Manfred, things like that. But the thing is, TV's early days, there wasn't a lot of stuff on as far as cartoons. They had cartoons from the old shows from Max Fleischer, the old Popeyes, they had things from Heckle and Jekyll, from uh, uh, they had Mighty Mouse, things like that. And so you could see some really neat animation. But of course, the Disney animation was something about even as a kid, you knew that something that was really magical and a little bit different, a little more detailed, a little more lifelike came out of Disney. And okay. so we started seeing a show called The Wonderful World of uh, Color. Although in my house it was a Wonderful World of Black and White because that's all we had was a black and white TV. But we got to see things like from Pinocchio. They would show 
uh, some real long excerpts from Fantasia, and you went, oh, my God, look at this stuff. And there's just something incredible about seeing that something you knew was some kind of artwork, but somehow they were making it move. They were bringing life to it. So I got a kick out of that, and I would sit there and do what a lot of kids do and just draw in the corners of my school books, you know, little flip books, things like that. You know, get in a lot of trouble doing that kind of stuff. And, and of course, you end up doing things for the, the school newspaper and the yearbook and all that. But I love doing that type of stuff. So my early influences, I'd have to say, was uh, watching cartoons on TV. We had even the Looney Tunes. We could sit there and see all the, the stuff from uh, Warner Brothers, which is great, and uh, Pre-Sensor, all that kind of stuff. We had great Disney cartoons to look at. And like I said, they're all black and white. I didn't see a lot of the color versions unless we went out to a movie theater. And then you see, oh, my God, look at the Technicolor up on the big screen. So that and also, I mean, a lot of my influences were uh, some of the traditional painters at the time. I didn't really uh, make a real big study of it, but I know that I was influenced by Norman Rockwell, Howard Pyle, people like the NCYF, the traditional illustrators. Because what they did was not just do a painting, but they told stories with their illustrations. That I lost them. <laughs> no, we're here. No, I'm just really engrossed by everything you're saying here, Mike. It's really awesome to hear this stuff. Well, I, um, not, my wife usually gets grossed by it, but uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did um how did you get started with Disney? Like, what happened there? How did that get started? Well, I uh, was a big fan of the Disney, like everybody else, I think at the time, a lot of the kids. And I it was in an art class. I had been doing. I uh, was in the uh, they call it the the sixth period, like it was a sports period. And I was doing baseball, and then I took a real bad, bad hop. I was playing shortstop and uh, crunched up my fingers trying to do it. I caught the ball barehanded, trying to make a real quick throw, and it wasn't a good idea. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I should do something a little safer. And so anyway, I went ahead and transferred to art class, and I had enjoyed doing a lot of artwork over the years. And the teacher there said, well, there's a school out there in California that Walt Disney has started. Uh, maybe you should look into it. So he's the one that set up a lot of things for me. And I ended up going out to CalArts. It was a brand new campus. It had only been open for just a little over two years when I went out to, to Valencia. It opened in 71. I went out there in 73. And I got accepted, although I was trying to get into the animation program. There was only what they called experimental animation, which took in uh, finger paints, uh, pinhead nails, uh, sand, all kind of stop motion. Nothing really Disney. In fact, the school at that time wasn't really pro-Disney. Disney... Disney had earmarked it quite a bit, almost half his will was earmarked for uh, CalArts. But they weren't really getting much of a return on their money because, let's say, for instance, I was in a, a, a film history class. I talked to the history teacher, and I had just, for the first time, finally seen Pinocchio in full color. They had it at the library. You could check out every Disney film that he'd ever done and watch it on a flatbed. And so wow. I was watching Pinocchio, and I saw Bambi, and I went, oh, my God, these films are just breathtaking. And I was in the art school. And I said, well, are we going to be studying any of the Disney films? I remember the, the teacher, the instructor there, along with uh, our classes, about maybe 12 people, broke up in laughter. And the teacher said, quote, unquote, we don't consider Disney films worth studying. Ooh. But what happened were... was the dean at that time, when I was in the art class, I was doing a life drawing. I remember I was sitting there trying to do, and I had a book on Norman Rockwell, and I was trying to do these you know, pretty realistic studies. I was doing quick studies, and I was doing charcoal studies of the figure and the teacher came around some of the students started to come around and started watching because mine were fairly photographically real I mean, i was put a lot of work into it and i've been drawing like that since maybe about third grade or so just really trying to study you know light and dark and how it works on the human figure faces hands that kind of stuff 
And so he says, boy, what are you looking to do? And I said, well, I want to be an illustrator, maybe work for Disney one day. So he contacted uh, Bill Lunn, who was the acting president of CalArts. Now, Bill Lunn was married at that time to Sharon, who's one of Walt's daughters. And so they set up all these meetings. So I would get a chance to go over to Walt Disney Studios in 1973. And that's where I met a lot of the, uh, what was left of the, the nine old men that were still working there. And they would sit there and they would ask me, well, what's going on at CalArts? What do you think of the school? Are you learning anything? And I would tell them just what I was doing. Most of what I was learning was going into the library and checking out either books or looking at the films. And the more I told them, I think the, the more upset a few of them became like, my gosh. And so they started they worked on a brand new development program. I was offered a job at the studio at that point, but there's a development program going on. And at the same time, they wanted to start a program called character animation over at CalArts. It didn't start for a few years later, but it was going to be something where they could sit there and train the artists in very regimented, uh, well thought out classes. We had basic drawing and perspective. We had life drawing. We had uh, design classes. Um, these were classes where if you showed up late, they could just lock the door. I mean, it was, a lot of the school at that time was very avant-garde and, and kind of lackadaisical. But some of the classes, let's say, in music and some of the dancing and different things, were very, very regimented, very serious. And when Disney started their program there, it was like that. They, it was a lot of fun. I don't make it sound like we didn't have a good time because we really did. But our teachers were all ex-Disney, uh, or they were Disney legends. There were guys that worked with Walt, and it worked on features from Snow White to Pinocchio to Fantasia, Bambi, you name it, all the way up to like Lady the Tramp and things. Wow. And we had people lecturing from all over the place. It was it was an amazing time to be at CalArts. Wow, that's some great information there, Mike. I, mm -hmm. I love hearing all of that. But let's yeah, jump I'm not, in. I'm learning a lot here, man. This is so interesting. <laughs> um, but let's let's jump ahead just a little bit. Um I know you were there, Mike, when Disney Television Animation got started in the mid eighties, correct? Right. Could you tell us well, a little a bit about Ken Anderson was one of the nine old men. Or no, he's actually he's one of the, he's to call him the tenth old man. He should have been one of the nine old men. The nine old men were just uh, they're all animators, very talented people, but there were a tremendous amount of other people at Disney that were also every bit as talented and as good as those as what they singled out for the nine people. And mm -hmm. Ken Anderson was one of those people. And I'd worked with him on a couple of projects. I worked with him on Catfish Ben. And so when they started doing the T V division they asked if he could recommend a few people that might come over and help him out with some of the concept art. And he recommended me, which was a heck of an honor. And so I went over and joined him. I would do some work on, it was like gummy bears, which I, it threw me at first. I was still working at features full time. And the thought of doing a show based on candy, a bag of candy was a huge idea. And it's like, well, we're going to make this one kind of yellow and make this one red. and make. It's like, are, you, are we going to put sugar, you know, sugar crystals on these guys? And so... I went ahead and I did some what's called publicity art. I did sketches of what the characters could look like, even though we weren't really set for sure. And the weird thing is, the sketches I did really early on uh, became used. They're still effective using them now on things like the DVD cases and all. Decades later, and it's like, oh my gosh. So any artist out there, be careful what you draw, because when you turn it in, it might end up being used over and over and over again, and you you can't change those lines later on. You're you're, you're stuck with it. But I it was no I mean, idea that was like you. Tom Enrique is mm -hmm. also one of the. I want to make sure he gets credit too. He was one of the early artists out there Who? working on the film around that series. Who's that? Uh, Tom Enrique is. Oh, okay. Very, very talented guy. So I worked on that with Ken. I worked on the thing, uh, Gummy Glenn, some of the different uh, early things of the tree and what it would look like, and uh, just character relationships, uh, size relationships, that kind of stuff, what the characters, how they would work. 
and what colors we're going to use for each character. So um, what about DuckTales then? Tell us a bit about the development of DuckTales. Uh, DuckTales was interesting because I had worked with, uh, where I, I didn't work with, I knew Carl Barks through the head of the uh, Disney program over at CalArts was, uh, was Jack Hanna. Mm-hmm. So with Carl, I, the first time I ever met him, and I admit ignorance, I wasn't, uh, I was a big comic fan, but the comics I grew up with were uh, some Disney, but a lot of uh, Superman and Jimmy Olsen and Batman and Spider-Man and more of the superhero types. I know some people go, oh, I used to blasphemy. How could you not like all that? I liked it. <laughs> I was just a big superhero fan. But I, I went ahead. Uh, Jack Hanna and Carl had worked together back on you know, special effects back in the 30s on things like the old mill and stuff. And they worked through story, worked on the Donald Shorts under Jack King and all. And later on, of course, uh, Carl broke away and went to do his, his comics and became quite an icon just doing that and creating the whole world of, of that we based DuckTales on, the entire world of Duckburg with Uncle Scrooge. So anyway, but before that happened, I met Carl, and I was taking him on a tour through CalArts, and he was a little bit hard of hearing, had a little hearing aid in there, so he wants to get feedback on it, but it was a real gentleman, real, real fun guy. So he, I took him through, and I, I wish I had known at that point, someday I'd be working on a show called DuckTales, and this is the guy you need to thank. But I ended up, uh, we had dinner over at uh, Jack's house a couple years later when I was working on DuckTales, and I showed Carl some of the work I had done, and... The weird thing is, when we started doing DuckTales, the studio bought me all these books. I think, I'm not sure if it was called Gladstone or something. It was a company that put these huge hardbound books together, like in volumes of like maybe three or so. Yeah, I think it was books. Gladstone. Gladstone, okay. Yeah. And so they gave me all these sets of Uncle Scrooge and Donald Duck and different things, which were fantastic. And I went through it. And so some of the things I was doing, they said, well, we're going to make some changes. And, you know, or whatever you, you feel like you want to try out, you know, just do it. You don't have to be wedded to this exactly. And I thought, well, I don't want to get anybody upset who's you know, a big fan out there because obviously there's huge fans, especially all through Europe. You wouldn't believe the following in Europe of, of, uh, of, of DuckTales, but also Karl Barks' work. Isn't Donald so Duck huge in out. Europe? Pardon? Isn't Donald Duck huge in Europe? Oh, he's, he's huge, and so is Uncle Scrooge. Or Scrooge McDuck is gigantic over there. They've got museums dedicated to some of this stuff. Wow. But I went ahead and I started working on it, and I looked at the mansion, and the mansion that was uh, that Carl had done was more kind of a southern mansion in a way. It was, it was more rectangular, simple with columns. I thought, gee, he's Scottish. It's Scrooge McDuck, lad. And I thought, well, what if I put him up in the in the hills and give him kind of a, a Scottish manor home type of thing? So I went ahead, and I, I went crazy with the dollar motifs. I figured, you know, if I'm going to put a dollar motif... <laughs> Everywhere I can think of. So, I mean, the, have a swing pool in the back, and it's, it's a dollar sign swing pool. Right. I've got the fountain in the front with a dollar sign. I put uh, a concopia. I have gigantic circular uh, parts of the architecture. But even like the weather vane was a dollar sign up there, and there's bags of money there. I had a, instead of showing little arrows, I had um, a, a pick and a, a pickaxe from his, uh, the areas we went through. The, in fact, one of those earliest adventures where he met Goldie in the Klondike. Mm-hmm. So, I tried to base things you know, all based on the books, but it was taking a, a unique twist. And so years later when I was working on the DuckTales and I was, did all these different uh, mansion designs and designs of Duckburg, I went ahead and I showed a couple of sketches because Jack had told me that you know, Carl was going to be joining us. And so I showed him the sketch and I thought, oh boy, he's going to, he was a gentleman. And I thought, well, he's just saying he likes it. But he said, you know what? And this was the, I think the most, uh, I don't know, the closest, I am the best compliment I ever had in my life. Because it means so much. Uh, he said, I wish I had thought of that. 
And I never forgot that. Like Carl looked at it and said, and I, at that point, I had already looked at all his comics, and I had this huge admiration, and I was uh, not afraid, but I just was so intimidated by what all this person had done, what he created. And I felt like oh, this might be just something where I'm asking for trouble if I show him something where I've just done something different. But he liked it. And over the years, a lot of those designs I did for DuckTales have become uh, part of the canon now. Because I see it even on some of the, the new versions coming over from Italy or something from France in the comics. I think mm -hmm. IDW better puts them out. And you'll see the new versions like, wow, they've, they've looked at this stuff. They actually are using our designs. That's awesome. That's really cool. Oh, I love hearing this stuff. Okay, now I want to talk about the terror that flaps in the night over here. I think it's, I think uh, let's talk about some Darkwing. Sorry, uh, Darkwing. Well, I could I could hear you talk about Ducktales all day. Honestly, I love hearing about the development of the show. But Darkwing Duck. Now we know Darkwing went through one hell of an evolution. Um, whistling Dixie, Buster. Yeah. Um, so Double O Duck, tell us a bit about the development of Darkwing Duck from the beginning. Basically, we all know it wasn't Darkwing Duck when it started. Right. So, well, when I got on it, I was actually doing, I was, I'd go back and forth. I was kind of ping-ponging back and forth between TV and features. I'd work on features, do some some concept work, and I'd go back and forth. So I just got finished uh, doing my ping-ponging. I was working on uh, Roger Rabbit in the morning at one point, and I was doing, uh, let's see, DuckTales was in the afternoon. And I, and I was paid for, like, in the morning I was paid by an Amblin employee from 12 to, uh, or from 8 o'clock to 12. From one to five, I was a Disney TV employee. Then at night, I was paid to do concept work for features. But then he said, we want to do something. We need some more shows. We need more, you know, some new shows we're going to put into the lineup. So Darkwing Duck, or Double O Duck, came because we had a failed show called Bullwinkle. And now, my wife and I, have, we had little annual passes because the Universal Studios is really about, you know, 15 minutes from the house down the way, down to Universal Studios. And so we'd go there, and I remember they said, well, we're going to do this show called, it's going to be Bullwinkle. We're bringing it all back. I'm thinking, like, did Jay Ward say it's okay? Oh, we don't, it's okay. We have permission. <laughs> we have the whole thing. Said, Are uh -oh. you sure Jay Ward said it was okay? I'm thinking, because Jay Ward's still around, and I didn't think he was a, a big fan of, of Disney offhand from what I, I'd heard. So next thing you know, I'm working on this thing like crazy. I developed all these things where it was like, I had fractured scary tales because, we were the, the, at that time. Uh, Friday the 13th was really big, and Jason and all that. So I had all these gag things done. I'd worked on it for like a solid week because we needed to get a, a, a certain number of series slotted in there to keep the you know our, our brand new Disney afternoon going. So they wanted you know new series, and so I had this whole thing ready to, to pitch. And then I remember I'd asked him, I said, "Do we have the rights to it?" And I was told, "Well, we have the video rights." And I'm thinking, "Video rights? Well, they must know because these guys are." It's management, so they, should, they know all these things. Well, a couple of days before we're going to pitch it, I get this uh, screaming call like, oh, my God, we don't have the rights. We don't have the rights. <laughs> and stop it. Throw your, you know, put your pencils down. And so we only had the rights just to uh, distribute. Like, I think this is the video, the shows they already done. We couldn't do any new ones. So Double O Duck was hurried through pretty quick. And Double O Duck was based on a character that you, you know from Duck uh, DuckTales. Right. And so then what happened was, when you're we doing it, I started doing some real early sketches. Now, another person who's uh, uh, Bob Klein and Tad Stone's already working on it. Yep. They were doing some, some sketches on the thing already. And Gary Kreisel, who was in charge of uh, he was Disney Channel and also Disney Afternoon, wasn't real happy the way it was going. And they were using a, pretty much the Double O Duck type design somewhat from the show. 
And Double Duck had a really round, round head. And uh, his car- his costume, I called it ice cream. It was the, pop- <laughs> the ice cream. It was, I mean, it was all white. I'm thinking like, wait a minute. You know, if this guy's like the superhero, it'd be kind of neat if you, I was thinking more like the Batman stuff and all. And, and Tad liked some of the ideas, things that were kicking around. Because he, he likes things. We are kicking around. We talked about the shadow, of Batman, all this kind of stuff. And so we turned it around and I started doing sketches where I ignored the white, uh, the white cape. And I started making it more just uh, closer to like Batman. We elongated. His hat was really almost like a, a pork pie hat that Buster Keaton wore. So I, I elongated it, made it more based on the shadow. And then his face, it really was a ripoff, to be honest. I got to say, it was Daffy Duck. And so when you're doing the pitch and all, we were kind of you know, really leaning heavy on Daffy Duck for the basic thrust to it. But also, R- Roger Rabbit had come out around that time, mm-hmm. and we added cheeks. Basically, if you take Daffy Duck... And you Roger take, Rabbit cheeks, yeah. You put Robert, Roger Rabbit cheeks on there. You've got what we what you end up doing because you want to try to do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You try to make something unique. You want to see what's been done and make sure yours is, is a little bit different. And so we did that, and uh, I did a bunch of sketch. It was crazy because that's what usually happens. I think at Disney TV in those days, anyway, we would need something really quick. Where nowadays, sometimes they'll still work on a TV series for sometimes months, uh, almost up to a year to get it all ready. Well, that thing was done under a week. And in fact, wow. most the final sketches I did, all the, the production, the pitch sketches, those were done over a weekend. I did all these pastels. Actually, I had to work really quick in pastel. And I do watercolor touch-ups. So all the final things, I did all these things where I do what is, I put them up on top of a bridge, which was something I thought might be kind of fun. I showed it to Tad, and he goes, oh, that's kind of neat. When Jeffrey <laughs> Katzenberg saw it, he goes, hmm, it reminds me of Basil. And I was like, well, what the heck? I, I worked on Basil. I did <laughs> I designed the, uh, a lot of things we did in, in Big Ben, so I can see why it might look like that. But I had him riding a motorcycle up the cable, which was something you could only do pretty much in animation. You wouldn't want to try that. Kids don't try that at home. And so they, they thought that was kind of neat. And that became something we used in the series. And also giving a motorcycle was something we ended up using. You know, we gave them the, made it the rat catcher. So it just it kind of grew bit by bit from that. You know, some of the earliest of your art I ever remember seeing were those uh, Darkwing sketches of the rat catcher on the bridge and him on top of the bridge and the double O duck stuff. Yeah, definitely some of your earliest art definitely for me well, was we, we Darkwing got stuff. We got this from MGM too because what happened was they would sit there and take these and go to uh, New York for the, I'm trying to think what they showed, called these things. It would be like a kind of a show and tell. We get the affiliates together from around the, the globe, especially in America. And you'd meet them there. It's okay. This is what, what Disney's going to be showing, what Warner's is showing. This is what uh, Columbia or Sony or everybody else. This is all the new shows we have. So you'd sit there and set up your affiliates and make sure you've got enough people that are buying your show. And what they did was they took the first elements right, I'd say right about uh, the time I was getting onto the show. They took all those. So those were the ones that were from Double O Duck, and they called it Double O Duck. And it's just like, there's a new hero in town or something. And it's a pop-up. If I've still got it. He's wearing the ice cream outfit, all white, and it's uh, it's just it's the the old it's the wrong character. But what happened was that went over to our, our good friends over at MGM, and they saw Double O Duck, huh? Well, now this, we're going to send you guys a cease and desist because we've got a Double O famous character already, and we don't want you guys to kind of horn in on that. So we'd like mm. you to change it. So we were we were advised that we should change the name, and so we had a contest in the studio and I, we, we must have had probably about uh, maybe 150 or whatever, a ton of names that some I won't repeat, but we had <laughs> some names 
And of course, Darkwing Duck ended up being the the, the winner. Right. And a trip to Hawaii. No, no. Was, I think it was a, a trip to uh, uh, Chili Chili John's over in Burbank. Mm. Mike, do you still have any of the Double uh, um, O Duck prints, the original ones? I I've got scans of all seven photographs. I think all the originals. The weird thing is, a lot of this stuff I always turn it into uh, the Disney archives. And mm-hmm. so the or back at that time we had the Disney TV archives, which is like a, a smaller version. And so what I've discovered since then, they've been interviewing me for a couple of books about the Disney Afternoon that are coming out pretty soon. And when I showed one of the guys came over for an interview at the house, and I showed him some some Xeroxes and some scans I had, and he goes, "Oh my God, this is better than what they have over down in the archives." I said, "You're kidding, because the archives <laughs> should have all the originals." He goes, "Well, they don't have this, so it's weird. I don't know what happened. I mean, I took." I took photographs of a lot of things that I would work on. I took Xeroxes, and just for you know a keepsake, you know, just a little memory of something that you did. And then I guess some of the stuff, for whatever reason, uh, they just didn't get put into the right files. Or in some cases, I know like with the comic books I would work on, right around through the I think it was the late all the 70s, maybe the 80s. I did a lot of uh, original artwork for uh, Uncle Scrooge comics and Donald Duck and stuff. And mm-hmm. that stuff I understand was all thrown out. Oh, I did I got... like watercolors. I had real tight watercolors and stuff for like special Christmas issues and Thanksgiving and stuff like that. And it would be like multi-pages, a real detailed kind of the old-fashioned 30s kind of approach. And then I turned the stuff in and they printed it and it became very popular. And I was talking to one of the editors and he goes, oh, yeah. It says it's one of the, the things I can't I just can't get over. They threw all this stuff out. They said at one point uh, we, gotta, you know, we, we shut down the comic division in our own company. Mm-hmm. And they just didn't want to really deal with... Uh, trying to put the stuff away somewhere careful so they just tossed it so yeah i've got scans of stuff but uh i'm not sure where all the original stuff is it could yeah, be in a lab. I, yeah i gotta get i gotta get some scans uh, autographed by you because uh we mentioned this in our very first episode of our podcast that i i mentioned it i i love the double o duck look of course i don't love oh, it as much as the dark wing one but i love it you know it's amazing to me well thank you i appreciate that so um, anything else uh, Darkwing related um, that we could talk about? Um, how involved were you once the series actually got rolling, uh, when it went into production? Actually, once it started going on there, what I would do is I'd do a lot of the concept work. So I work on shows in the very beginning, and then once that stuff goes to the end, or once it starts going production, I'll end up doing maybe uh, working on the title sequence or something or working on a teaser to get out there to the public. And then I'm already working on another show by the time that one, before it even hits the air. So I, was, good, I might have been working on Goof Troop or something yeah, at that point. Good segue, Mike. I read your posts about Goof Troop on your blog a few years ago, but I bet a lot of our listeners don't know this. Why was Goof Troop called Goof Troop? Your what guess is as good as mine. <laughs> no. Oh, What I, happened was they had Goofy was going to be a scout leader. He was going to sit there and take all these little kids around in a scout troop. And it, was a, it wasn't really a well-thought-out premise for a show. And I went through about a dozen different versions using that kind of premise. And we had maybe about two weeks to put together a show, to, to show Jeffrey and Michael and the guys. And so it, I kept sitting there working on different versions. And we'd make them all uh, different creatures. It might be like a gigantic rats, maybe a, a rabbit. Different. So, oh, let's make them all dogs this week. This week, let's make them lizards. Let's, let's add a gorilla. It was just it wasn't really thought out as far as a story or dynamics of how it would even look. And so finally, the uh, the last day, I got a, a call from uh, Gary again, Gary Kreisel, who's in charge, and he says, "So Mike, we're all ready for the uh, 
for the pitch next week. I said, uh, you haven't got a show. And he goes, what? I said, you haven't. And I told him what happened. Is that the, the last premise was, let's make him, we'll put them all into Toontown. And Goofy will be one of the, uh, he'll be a scout leader. He works in Toontown. And it's like, if you put Goofy in a world where everything is Goofy, he's no longer Goofy. It's like, when you have Pluto, he takes, uh, he you know, kind of relieves himself on a fire hydrant in Toontown. <laughs> the fire is going to chase him and hose him down for a little revenge. So that's a crazy world. And Goofy's only strange if he's in a world like, like you know, a little bit like ours, you know, and, and how he handles driving, how he handles swimming, how to ride a horse, how to play baseball, whatever. But if you put him into a place where everything is crazy, he's not quite as goofy as he, as he should be. Mm-hmm. And so I said, what? And so I remember Gary said, well, what would you do? And I, and I said, well, what if we just basically make him, it's a father and son sitcom. And I said, it's a single parent trying to raise a kid. And there's a lot of you know, people that are dealing with that right now. And I said, and also, imagine you're, a, say, a preteen. You're dealing with all the usual stuff. You got, you know, how are you going to find a date for Friday night? Or are you going to pass that, that next test in algebra or whatever? All the things are going on. Am I going to be picked for the baseball team? Am I going to be the last one and just left out and make, be the manager or whatever? And I said, so he's dealing with all these things the kids deal with. On top of that, his father's goofy. And I mean literally goofy. And so he says, that sounds fantastic. Let's do it. So then I worked. And again, one of the things where I worked on, it was uh, mainly over a weekend, getting all the stuff ready for that uh, Monday pitch. It was, it was insane. So I, had, I did always well, say, how would you do the pitch? And I said, well, I was thinking a day in the life of Goofy. From the time he gets up in the morning to the time he goes to bed. But said, through all of the stuff, no matter what, both Goofy and his son realize that there is a, a bond. There's a love between them that can never be replaced. And so I tried it. That's something that I don't know. Walt Disney, believe it or not, uh, wasn't really a huge fan of Goofy. No, I and heard Walt, that. So, you, know, you heard that? I've heard that. Yeah, I heard he didn't like yeah. Goofy very much. Well, the reason was, from uh, I've looked at the interviews and all, and talking to some of the guys that were, because I talked to Jack uh, Kenny and Jack Hanna, and they both directed some of the Goofy shorts. They would hear some things from Walt. Walt more than once complained that they were treating Goofy as a prop. And what set Walt's animation apart from all the other animation was his head personality. And so he didn't, I mean, I did, I like some of the quote unquote prop shorts, like hockey homicide is. Hilarious. Oh, I love that cartoon. <laughs> I, that's my favorite. That's just, that's fantastic. But apparently Walt, um, he wanted more and more personality. He was afraid that it was getting closer to like Warner brothers or just something like that. He wanted to have his have personality and feel to it. So I made sure that I had a thing where part of the pitch I had was at the very last sketch I had was goofy going over to the pitching mound his son, Max, is out there, and you can see up on the scoreboard, it says like 99 to nothing or something. And his son's, you know, real dejected. The crowds are gone. The sun's setting. Uh, you see tumbleweeds rolling across the baseball field. But he puts his arms around Max and he goes, well, that's okay, Max. I still love you. And so I want to make <laughs> sure things like that, that. No matter what happened, it mm-hmm. shows there's a real love between these guys. That's wonderful, Mike. Mike, I wanted to ask you something really quick about Darkwing. Um, one thing that made the show really strong was the villains. Did you have like a like a, a favorite villain that you like doing the concept for or animation for? Was there like a certain villain that stood out to you? You know, we were looking at things like from James Bond and stuff because I had some stuff in the shadow. But I'd say one of my favorites is probably just Steelbeak. Mm. Nice. Okay. It, it, it depends. There's so many things because at that point, right about, I only did a couple of different villains. I had some. I can't remember the right names. I don't want to 
say some kind of slur or something and get in trouble for it. But we had so many <laughs> villains that uh, and we tried to stick a few of those into the pitch. Mm-hmm. And then I, I went on my merry way at that point. Okay. Ah. So fast forwarding quite a bit, you got to work with uh, DuckTales and Darping again recently on the new DuckTales show. Boy, that was fun. That was incredible. They gave me a, they gave me a call, invited me to come over early on before DuckTales had aired. And I said, well, we're working on this. And they, they, they treated me like just, uh, well, so here you're the returning hero or something. And, and it was just fantastic. The people that I met there, from uh, Frank to Matt, uh, Sean was the art director. Frank and Matt were the producers cre- and co-creators of the new version. And Susanna Olson, they were just, uh, the whole crew was the was just fantastic. And they would show me what they were working on. And, and the, it threw me a little bit when I saw the characters. I said, well, that's... And one of the character designers, one of the lead ones, said, well, we're trying to do something different because in the past, they've always based so many things on circles. We thought we'd do something and make it a little more edgy, you know, no pun intended. And so it was really more uh, cube faces. And I said, well, just make sure when you get to, uh, you start making some merchandise, uh, watch out the kids don't hug those guys because they'll poke, they'll poke their eye out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they didn't. And the funny thing is, I think that had a little bit of an effect because they, they softened the edges a little bit by the time it went to uh, in, through production. And it was just, it was a blast because I loved it. They gave me a call and said, you know, could you, and they said, well, could you work on a couple of things for us? I said, well, yeah, do you want me to, I can draw it in your new style if you'd like. And he goes, oh, no, 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 we want you to do your style. So I ended up, I would do things that would be like a hybrid, a little bit of both. I try to, try to do a little bit more closer to what they were doing, but they wanted me to kind of put my own touch into it. It's like, okay, it might look a little unusual, but like for the Christmas credits uh, for the, uh, that episode, you know, the Christmas episode with Scrooge mm-hmm. was a blast to work on. It was fantastic. Again, Sean Menez was the art director. Sean couldn't have been any better to work with. The guy was was fantastic. So worked with uh, all of them. It was just that crew was like going back in time and working with the original Ducktales crew. It was just a lot of people getting together, very excited and just uh, wonderful to be around. I think it was so amazing when that Christmas episode aired. Those credits, they let you do them exactly how you did for Mickey's Christmas Carol. That was that... a blast because they, that was one of the things I worked on a few different episodes, and one of them said, well, we want to do something kind of a homage to Mickey's Christmas Carol. And so I said, oh, really? So I went in and talked to him, and I, I took in, again, I had scans and stuff, and I had one of the plates, one of the background plates, uh, how I did the original uh, titles. And so the original titles, when I did them for Christmas Carol, I would take a piece of animation paper, and rub some pastels and a little bit of uh, what I call Disney dirt. And we had linoleum floors back in the old studio in those days. So I would sit there and take the uh, take my foot, put on top of the paper, and just rub it down into the dirt and put I mean, I crumple it up and really just mistreat the animation paper in the worst way. And then I would sit there and add a little bit of watercolor to it. And it was all done like in umbers and, and some different oranges and things like that and burnt sienna. So I had something that looked almost like a parchment paper. Then I would sit there and I'd sketch the characters like Jimmy Cricket or Mickey or whatever. And I, then I took it over to Xerox. And I said, can you Xerox this in a brown line? And I'd put it over that, uh, that background. So the background plate we used was the original background plate from Mickey's Christmas Carol. So it's kind of a little nod to the old film. And it was a blast working on those characters. That was fantastic. And the, the Darkwing comic art in the Duck Knight oh. Returns episode, I was not prepared for that. Yeah, what? seeing his name pop up like that, I was like, whoa! Yeah, you actually <laughs> got your name I, you know, right there. Said, I, wouldn't get, I would not sign my name to something like that because it just it seems kind of strange to put it on a show. But uh, Matt was going, we had a story meeting talking about it, 
And Matt goes, well, go ahead, put your name on it. And everybody says, yeah, put your name on it. But that's kind of, I figure, well, I'll put my name on it, but it, they'll definitely take it off by the time it hits the airwaves. And so I didn't see it the first time it actually hit or the day it hit. Because some people would sit there and look at it like, uh, I don't know, like early previews or whatever it was. And I started getting all these emails and people on Facebook writing all these things. But Mike, we saw what you worked on. I went, how could you have seen it? And, they, <laughs> and I, I saw it and it had my signature still there. And I went, oh, my gosh. Boy, that was so head cool. roll for this. <laughs> it was that was truly amazing. I love working on the new characters like that. It was, and I did it in the old style, which was kind of funky and neat. So that was a lot of fun. Are you still involved at all, or? I do some things. I just can't really say much about it because hey, it, until they actually hit the airwaves. Fair enough. That's just that's encouraging enough to hear. That's awesome, Mike. And um, so basically to start wrapping up, what would you say out of all the things you worked on all these years, is there something you're like particularly the most proud of or like what has been your favorite thing to have worked on? Well, if Mermaid you ha- was, was a blast because Mermaid has a lot of fans. Uh, my, my daughter was actually, uh, my first daughter was born during development. She was born with flaming red hair. She was actually the real reason that Ariel's got red hair. And that was a lot of fun to work on that with Howard Ashman because he was a great, great songwriter. Um, but I'd say maybe oh, I worked with Jim Henson and Frank Oz on the Muppet movie. That was a blast. Oh, you lucky man. So I'd say that was <laughs> something really special because having lunchtime with those guys you know, privately was, was just a, a hilarious. It was a lot really, of fun. Really quick, yeah, since yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know you worked on the Muppet movie. What did you do for that movie? My wife and I both, we worked on it. We were uh, the uh, we were Emmett and Ma Otter. My wife was Ma Otter. I was Emmett. You know, typecast. Oh. What can I say? But uh, of course, she's out of reach. She can't punch me right now. I'll get a punch later, probably when she hears this. But uh, it was a blast. The first day we were there, we took all these lessons from from uh, Frank and, or actually from Jim. And Jim said, "Look, when I tell you, put your hands up and Muppets up, and you do your routine." We were all wearing black, and we had little TVs in front of us, and it was pre-recorded soundtrack. And we'd sit there and, and just kind of mouth and do all the acting to it. She said, I want to say, you know, Muppets up, you get them ready, we'll see, you know, roll them, action, and all that. When I say, Muppets down, rest your arms. I said, I know these guys don't weigh much. They're just foam rubber. But believe me, by the end of the day, if you don't, rest your arms. And it was funny because there was a couple other people who just started the same day. And they didn't rest their arms. And boy, they, it was like uh, they were made of jelly by, by 5 um, o'clock. So... Yeah, I'm a gigantic Muppet fan. Huge, huge. Were you one of the many, many, many people that had performed Muppets for that final musical number at the end? We, we did that. We did a couple scenes, but that was one of the things we did. That was one of the reasons we were actually hired. And then what happened was afterwards, um, Jim came over and was talking to my wife and I both. says, look, uh, are you guys, uh, what are you guys doing? He says, well, we're, we're studying over at CalArts and all this. He says, well, when it's, when it's all done, he says, are you, where are you going to go? I said, well, we're hoping, you know, to get uh, over at Disney, he said he told both of us because he says if it doesn't work out, if uh, you don't end up not going there, or if you go there, it doesn't quite not the place you wanted or whatever. He says please keep us in mind. He says you got a home with us, and he wrote Thanks. us the, the the nicest thank you note, a nice handwritten note from Jim Henson, which I got hanging in my studio to this day. It just uh, we one of the nicest guys I worked for. But I'd say that was one of the the biggest treats I've ever worked on. That's fantastic. But also, one of the films that I worked on that never actually got made, I would say, would be Little Broomstick. And that was something I worked in with uh, some of the nine old men, like Wooly Reiterman and all. Mm-hmm. And that was, and it, see if it sounds familiar to you. This was back around 78. It was a little girl who uh, ends up 
being taken out. Her her parents are not having the greatest time of getting divorced, but she's uh, ends up going out to the country to live with her aunt, and she's not treated that well. She doesn't. She's not banded under a staircase, but she's put in a little storeroom where she kind of hangs out. She finds a little broom anyway through some magical things that happen with a certain flower that blooms once every few hundred years. She's transported to this wizard and witchcraft school. Huh. Oh. Boy, does that sound familiar. <laughs> and uh, so it was, a, it was a fantastic. But the thing is, it was loaded with so much flying and all the crowds. We had crowds and crowd scenes in there. So, well, it got to the point where we were developing that and developing Black Cauldron. And I was a huge Black Cauldron fan, but then I re- they said, well, we can only do one film. And so mm-hmm. it's what you want to work on, or what you think would be the best film. And it's funny because some of the old guys, the old guard, thought it should be uh, Little Broomstick. And I actually jumped teams from little from Black Cauldron to Little Broomstick saying, you know, I agree. I think it is a, a better story. And we went with Black Cauldron instead. Boy, do I wonder what would have happened if you had made Little Broomstick instead. Would there be a <laughs> Harry Potter right now? <laughs> but that sounds, it you know, sounds I, very I, scary I familiar. It was based on a book. Um, I'm trying to think of the author's name, but it was, uh, it was really a, a beautiful little story. It was, it was frightening because it was like these kids disappear from across part of the country, and, and people are looking for them, and they're, they're missing their kids, and they're all transmogrified or something into these animals at this witchcraft school. And so at the very end, this finale is to help all these kids that have been missing for, in some cases, I don't know, like 10 or 20 years from their parents and to get them back home. It was almost, when you saw the stuff we did, I think people were almost crying. It was, so, it was so powerful. And it was just heroic, and it had a lot of laughs in it, too. But it just, it was so detailed, so complicated. You almost needed to do it back in the, the 30s or something. But they Mike, probably could easily do it now, too, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now we could do it, yeah. Yeah, now, Mike, you mentioned your wife twice on here, and um, I'm on IMDb right now, and I I have to let you plug her. Uh, her resume is just amazing. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Can you plug, like, some of her work she's done? Well, I'll tell you, Patty was, um, I met her over at CalArts, and the first day we were in line at the bookstore, and she tapped me on my shoulder, and she says, uh, excuse me, good looking. And she said, uh, someday I want to marry, and you know, actually, I'm saying, because she's down the way, she can hear what I'm saying, so I'm just having some fun with her. But anyway, no, she, um, she was the first, we didn't have that many girls in the animation program at Disney, and out of that, we only had just, a, I think it was like maybe three or something to begin with, out of the whole program. But she was the first female hired from CalArts Disney program by the studio. And she became the first female effects animator in the history of Disney Studios. So I'm, I'm very, very wow. proud of her. She would do scenes that uh, people would, at that time, she was low, I say low man on the totem, low person on the totem pole. And you might be handed scenes where maybe somebody would be a, on the stack to pick up, might be a, one leaf fluttering down from a tree leaf or from a tree branch. And there'd be another scene where it might be about 30 leaves fluttering through with branches breaking. And you know, she would be low person, so she'd be handed the one with all the leaves and the branches breaking. So she started getting all these scenes, earthquakes and volcanoes and stuff that were detailed. And they were really would hurt your footage. And footage was something, was a quota we, we kind of had. Although Disney was always about quality. It's like, you know, do the best you can. Try to hit the quota, but let's make sure it's, it's look, you know, it's Disney quality. So she ended up working on this stuff. At one point, she was doing some stuff for, uh, of course, for Cauldron, for Fox and the Hound and all. But she did a thing for Meet the World, and it was all these. It was like the birth or the creation of Japan. It had all these waves crashing, and it had volcanoes erupting, earthquakes, all this stuff. And I remember she had, she'd been told she, they were going to show a screen it up in the sweatbox. It was Walt's old sweatbox up on the third floor. 
Mm-hmm. So she goes up there, and uh, there was two figures. She opened the door, and you know, kind of see a little bit of light kind of creep in. There's only two figures sitting in the entire little auditorium there. And one was Ron Miller, who was the head of the studio. And the other person was Dave Mishner, who was uh, the head of all the effects that were being done for Epcot and all the different parks and stuff. And it was her immediate boss. So they started running this, and he goes, wait, uh, is this, did Josh Metter do this? Did we rehire Josh? And Josh is one of the great effects animators. He did things, uh, even for outside studios, like the creature from the id, from Freedom the Planet, you know, that weird-looking uh, kind of electric creature that erupts and attacks the spacemen. Mm-hmm. He would he worked on things like that. He just did so much stuff. He was amazing. So it was a, a compliment to be compared to that. But he says, is this uh, Josh? And, and he goes, no, it's uh, Patty Peraza. And he said, well, is she an animator? And he goes, no, she's not. And she says, well, she is now. So oh. she got promotion. At that time, when she was promoted to animator, she was the only organization. Mm. So, yeah, I'm very, very proud of her. Now, Mike... Um... Hopefully that'll give me a, a uh, maybe a, a bowl of gumbo in the next couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> hey, happy wife, happy life. You bet. <laughs> <laughs> now, Mike, uh, I know right now with the, the corona and stuff, with the way the world is, but once this all passes through, uh, can the uh, our listeners, our you know, Darkwing fans, can they find you at conventions and stuff? Or, uh, do you have any um, like already scheduled, or do you guys plan on touring out there or anything? We had a few. We had something that was going to happen down in Florida. We also had one in South Carolina, and uh, those were canceled. We had a, we have something I think coming up in July. Oh it's, man! Uh, I'm in Georgia. I'm like right between those two states, Florida and South Carolina. <laughs> well, we have Chicago in August. And we have mm-hmm. a few other ones, but yeah. Well, you know, let me. If you want to send me a, a name of a convention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> contact and see if they're interested okay yeah because we would love to promote you out there and uh, share with uh, our listeners because you know the animators like you said they they don't they don't get as much love man and they they should i I was kidding about that about the voices because actually a lot of the voices like jim and are are good friends but i it's it's funny because a lot of conventions do seem to kind of cater more towards that and Mm -hmm. we've done a few conventions we actually put them together with voices and artists and things and and it's made it even more fun, I think. And so we've been very, very lucky. We've been treated very well at all your convention we've been to. So it's, we've, we've enjoyed it. That's terrific. Mm-hmm. All right. So well, thanks for being on here, Mike, man. We really appreciate you being on here with this interview, man. We learned a lot, man. It was very educational. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Mike. Well, thank you, guys. You guys take care. Keep in touch. You too. Stay dangerous. <laughs> Let's all get dangerous together, fellas. See y'all later. <laughs> Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>